This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Historical immunity. Eggshells, witches and fairies. Gotcha traps. And our 2014 movie Top Tens. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Okay, before we get started, let's have a bit of a preamble hut because we are chuffed, uh, proud as punch, and as excited as pineapples to acknowledge that once more we've been nominated for a Golden Geek Award. Also, uh, Ken, you and I have further shared glory insofar as Dreamhounds of Paris is nominated for Best RPG Supplement. And so you and I and our co-author Steve Dempsey can take a nomination acknowledgement bow for that. And the Guy and Reach RPG, of all things, is in as a Dark Horse candidate for uh, Best RPG. And uh, you also get to brag about... About uh, the 13th Age Bestiary being uh, nominated for Best RPG Supplement. So that is another nice thing. I co-developed that with Rob Heinso and wrote a couple of the monsters in it. So I have a little a little thumb in that uh, nomination as well. And, of course, the only award that truly matters in the Golden Geek Awards, Best Podcast for which we here at Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff have been nominated once more. So if you are listening to this before February 22nd and are a a member of RPG Geek and therefore eligible to vote, uh, please consider doing so. Yes, and our congratulations to all the other nominees, even our beloved rivals, 
in the best podcast category. And we hope that they do as very best as they can uh, in this run-up to the Golden Geek Awards. Uh, it's a it's a increasingly prestigious award, and it's always very interesting to see how that specific sort of uh, mechanism plays out. So cross fingers, and everyone look properly modest as the announcement comes up. February twenty second is the deadline. Vote for us. Uh, vote for other people, but mostly for us. As we open the door into the paneled basement and the shag carpeting, we see on the table that the dice are Roman faience dice carved with strange glyphs. The miniatures are the actual tiny men used by H.G. Wells himself, and the copy of Frampton Comes Alive was the one owned by Peter Frampton. Indeed, (laughs) we're looking into history in the gaming hut, and the question of if historical figures have touched your game, how important, how signal, how clear are their fingerprints? Robin, what are we asking about figures from history in our role-playing games. Uh, what are we asking? We're asking whether they have script immunity. Is Ooh. that cover of Frampton Comes Alive the original one, or is it the one after we've had to resurrect him as a zombie because we needed him for more of the plot, but the players, uh, for some reason, perhaps a hatred of vocoders, uh, decided that they uh, wanted to off him or just failed to save him from the orcs or whatever it is that bedevils Peter Frampton in, the in, in, in your campaign. So, uh, can you do a lot of historical gaming? You're doing a historical game right now. The, I guess the, the two sides of this coin are uh, player agency. Mm-hmm. You want them to feel that they can affect the world that they're in and that they're not bumping up against arbitrary uh, barriers that they, you know, that they don't want to run into the uh, shield of uh, time travel if they're, you know, want to kill a famous evil historical figure. But on the other hand, uh, if they can do that, suddenly you're playing an alternate universe game and perhaps they don't want to be playing an alternate universe game in case, in which case, why did they let Peter Frampton die in the first place? So how do you typically handle this? I try to load the uh, dice a little bit in favor of the historical character. I mean, one of the reasons that we have, uh, for example, most recently, my characters were involved in a gunfight with Billy the Kid and... In uh, an unknown army's context, gunfights are very dangerous. Billy the Kid is an avatar of the Masterless Man, which gives him a lot of uh, survive gunfight abilities, which I used to the max. And I wanted to make sure that, uh, A, they recognize that Billy the Kid is a real threat. Uh, Ordinarily, an 18-year-old named Henry is not considered a giant threat, but in this particular case, I wanted them to understand that he was a powerful entity even uh, at this early age, and even when he was still Henry the Kid, when he was still Henry the Kid. Although historically, there's some been some badass Kid Henrys. There have, there have been, and Billy the Kid was among the baddest ass Kid Kid Henrys. And and so the the goal was, you know, if they'd been able to kill Billy the Kid, they would have killed Billy the Kid, and we would have moved on. It doesn't really derail American history to have Billy the Kid die three years early or whatever. But I and uh, again in 1881, they're going to be present at the OK Corral gunfight, and they all know they're going to be present at the OK Corral gunfight, and it'll be very interesting to see what they do there. Uh, Another thing is to make some of the characters, uh, historical characters, characters that they want something from. So right now they're about to, they're they're in, in, they're in a meeting with uh, Leland Stanford, uh, who is a big, odious goof, but they want something from him, so they can't just, you know, drown him in a in a in a in a uh, butt of Malmsey, they have to actually get something out of him, and so that keeps him alive as well. 
But if no, if they decide what they want to do most of all is to kill Leland Stanford, then I have to decide, okay, how do I ac- account for the fact that Leland Stanford historically lives for another you know, 25 years. Is is there a tulpa of Leland Stanford that's built by his wife? Is there, what do I do? Or do I, as you say, put it into a, a alternate history without Leland Stanford, one in which his uh, widow takes on the role that he took on in founding Stanford University and doing all the other sorts of weird shenanigans that he did as part of the railroad, the Southern Pacific Railroad Association. I guess one of the issues here is that players can make a choice in the spur of the moment that leads to a game that they thought they didn't want to play. Right. So that if they want to be playing in our history and then they kill Leland Stanford, uh, they are either going to rely on you to do whatever is necessary to make it feel as much like history with Stanford being dead, or they're going to wish that they hadn't exercised their agency because, of course, just like our real behavior in the actual world, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes we do things in the spur of the moment that lead to uh, outcomes that we uh, wouldn't have hoped for. Even in real history, that happens. Even in real history, it's almost as if actual history is strongly contingent. <laughs> and so uh, you can, at the outset of play, say to your players, do you want this to turn into an alternate history campaign if you kill Leland Stanford, or do you want the historical figures uh, and the history as we know it to continue? And once they answer that question for you, uh, you can then do what it is that they propose to do. And one way to do that is, let's say that they do pick the, we want to keep playing in real history and not change the timeline significantly option. Then you have the question of how to shut them down when they draw down on Leland Stanford without making them feel shut down, without having the the heavy hand of the fourth wall, to wildly mix a metaphor, uh, come down in front of them and and have the bullets ping off that. So what I guess I would do in that situation is say, well, interrupt in my GM authorial voice saying, well, your characters at this point want to really kill Leland Stanford as players is it still true that you want to play an actual history? And assuming they all nod, then do the old throw it back on them trick and say, okay, explain to me why you were unable to kill him at this moment, even though you want to. And what that does is that lets them uh, seize enough of the narrative to still feel that they, as players, are in control of what's going on, even though as characters they are failing or being rebuffed. And so that way they can choose a cool way not to kill Leland Stanford, right? It's like, well, Stanford's cowboy ninjas come through the door and we have to run away from them. Mm-hmm. And that way they are get to do something groovy and, and fun and something that throws you a ball that you can take and do something in another direction with. Because otherwise, you know, you, you may, as a GM, not have the most exciting way of stopping them. Or if you have the cowboy ninjas come through the door, that seems more like a narrative heavy thumb on the scale yeah. than somehow if they do the exact same improbable thing. Right. Yeah. By and large, in general, uh, like with so many uh, questions of what do you do in a role-playing game, the answer is talk to the players and ideally get the players to uh, weave the rope with which they will be hung, as Lennon would put it, before he is killed by a player character. Um, another thing that you can do with the historical, uh, contingency, if you've killed Leland Stanford or Billy the Kid or, or President, uh, McKinley or whoever. Or Peter Frampton. Peter Frampton. Not that we recommend that, by the way. No, don't do kill, not Peter, kill Frampton. Peter Frampton. Please, people. He's served his debt to society. Um, 
well, he hasn't really. Um, imprison Peter Frampton, but don't kill him. The, the thing that you can do is to take the game and continue to explore thematically what the game's questions are, even if you don't have a, a actual present um, tulpa of Peter Frampton or a tulpa of Leland Stanford there to fill in the role of history. Because if, if you kill Leland Stanford, that doesn't mean Leland Stanford has left the game, right? He becomes like the Lily Kane of, uh, of Veronica Mars. He's the character whose death has now turned history on a dime or on a, or on a giant axle, really. And then your characters are going to be known as those guys that killed Leland Stanford. Leland Stanford will continue to haunt them, and all of what Leland Stanford had built will be going after them, and they can remain... You'll you'll still get the sense of history that you wanted by bringing Leland Stanford on, even if you're in an alternate history, is what I'm trying to say. That when you kill a historical figure, it's not just a fire and forget like I killed Orc number 3 on the way into the tunnels. No, I killed Peter Frampton on the way into the tunnels. That's going to have an effect. That's going to cause changes. That's going to, if Peter Frampton is showing up, one assumes that other music personalities are going to show up. They'll remember, or they'll know, or or if they don't know, they'll be saying, hey, you guys were the last people to see Peter Frampton before you went up to the Maiko haunted mountains of Vermont uh, to to scout that concert site. Uh, We need to take you with us because it's obviously so dangerous that Peter Frampton disappeared there. And then you can be part of that ongoing story of Peter Frampton or Leland Stanford or whoever, even if Ideally, you wanted to kill him because he is an obstacle, but his legacy remains part of the game. The flip side of this is when the players are playing historical figures, uh, as they are, for example, in Dreamhounds of Paris. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of ways that you can take that. First of all, you can say, well, this is an alternate history because, you know, it has moon beasts in it. (laughs) So (laughs) anything's up for grabs. or you can, uh, which is one of the options that the GM advice in that book suggests. Or another option is that you can say, well, the uh, historical events that we know of are, in fact, what's going to happen. And they're the mainline history. And that what you're doing in the background is the secret history. And sometimes things in the secret history might have to work out a certain way in order to maintain the integrity of the known history. So, for example, if... Uh, Louis Bunuel gets eaten by ghouls in 1933, as opposed to surviving into his ripe old age and making a number of uh, classic films of world cinema, something else happens to fill in the gap, right? That his dream form, uh, which is a handy tulpa-like plot conceit that is readily available to you, takes over and enters the waking world. Or, uh, you know, he comes back as a a ghoul, but he has illusion magic. So, you know, whatever it is Mm -hmm. that you can then justify the the real magic continuing. Now, some groups, I think, are going to find that uh, limiting because they see character death as sort of the most important challenge that you can throw in front of people or most important threat, especially in a Cthulhu game. Now, what Dreamhound says is, for this particular Cthulhu game, we're going to take that in another direction, and it's more sort of the emotional consequences of your explorations and changes that you make in the Dreamlands and what you do to other people through your effect on the Dreamlands that are at stake here, uh, but you have that other option if you want to use it. And so again, I guess that's a simple matter of a uh, question that you want to throw out to the players is like, uh, can you... Uh, happily play in a game where the stakes are something other than your character's survival. Or can you happily play in a game where if you die, 
your character will be resurrected for obscure historical purposes, but you won't get to play them or decide what they do. I mean, it's removal of your control over your character that is the equivalent to character death. So uh, Dali is resurrected, but he's resurrected by a weirdly royalist uh, dream tulpa version of himself, not by the straightforward uh, socialist that you've been playing him as up until that horrible mischance with the cats from Saturn. So are there other uh, aspects of this uh, that you want to tackle before we uh, uh, head along to our next segment? I think in the narrower uh, question of script immunity, we've sort of kind of come back and forth around it. But the notion of playing games with historical figures, either as the characters or as NPCs, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of narrative juice there, even if it's a very minor one. I mean, no one has been, was as impressed by President Rutherford B. Hayes when he was actually president as my players are when they saw his signature on a on a warrant by a minor historical character who flashes it, and they're like, "Oh, he's from President Hayes," and they they just enjoy, I think, being in a world where this guy is real. He's actually there in the in a way that you know. Right now, we sort of think, "Yeah, President Obama, he's the president. That's cool," but. We're not, you know, he's not history yet in the way that, you know, Rutherford B. Hayes, who is a relative non-entity, as presidents go, is. And so, therefore, that historical, he achieves some of the patina. And I think it's the question of what do you do with that patina that is maybe the larger question that we have begun to answer in, in this gaming hut. We have a, uh, a rather large hut looming at the end of this episode, so I think it's time to uh, make room for it by swiftly moving to our next segment. This episode is also brought to you by the Plot Points Podcast. Plot Points views role-playing games through the lens of literature. Plot Points takes a deep look at adventures from dozens of systems. Discover the link between Pathfinder's We Be Goblins and the poetry of Christina Rossetti. Learn how the recession of 2008 aided the recent flowering of geek culture. Can a role-playing game have a political leaning? Hear about a friendly local game store that pays Game Masters. How can gaming give meaning to life other than by paying Game Masters? Listen to an advanced review of the Dracula dossier. Well, I'm sold. Need we say more? Probably not, but there are still a couple of bullet points left. Novices and grizzled veterans can both find something to enjoy. Entire episode on the Dracula dossier, people. Find the Plot Points podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or at plotpoints.libsyn.com. Listen to us, then listen to them. The Doric columns and these resonant mosaics on the wall su suggest that we have wandered into the cavernous subterranean boundaries of the mythology hut. And this mythology hut is inspired by a segment of Ken and Valerie talk about stuff that I missed while we were all in Austin. <laughs> uh, so the, the that's, other a, day, that's a good show, by the way. I, I, maybe I should vote for that for the Golden Geek. Maybe you should. Yeah. So basically, uh, Valerie was saying, uh, as she threw out some uh, eggshells, it's like, do you remember the, uh, what Ken was saying about uh, 
eggshells being uh, boats for witches? And I said, I do not recall that because it turns out I was away from the table while you and Valerie were talking about superstitions. And I never heard uh, of this particular superstition about why uh, you should always crush your eggshells rather than just cracking them in two and putting them in the garbage or, you know, in these modern days in the compost without making sure they're crushed into little bits because uh, depending on the uh, superstition that you're following, this could become a boat for a witch. Ken, when did you first uh, run across this superstition? I ran across this as a kid. Um, I was a big fan, obviously, of witches and of superstitions um, and of eggs, actually. And so when I was getting all the books out of the library when I was a, a youth and had no discrimination whatsoever, somewhere in one of those giant books of superstitions, there was the superstition that witches ride in eggshells to cause shipwrecks. And this is something that shows up in North Carolina. It shows up in Scotland. It shows up in, in Russia. Uh, there's a lot of different places that uh, the belief that eggshells are little houses or little boats for witches uh, turns out. Uh, it, it's not just a, a localized, weird uh, thing that I saw one place. It, it does show up off, off and on. But I, I think that maybe there was a really good illustration or something, but it just twigged something with my little eight-year-old mind to say, well, then in that case, I should put my thumb through all the eggshells once we've made it. And anything that gives an eight-year-old boy an excuse to destroy something is obviously <laughs> the truth. So I uh, took it upon myself to make sure that no eggshell that was thrown out in the Hyde household was capable of supporting even the um, uh, most gossamer-like witch. And I continue to do that here in my own household, much to Sheila's uh, scornful amusement. <laughs> but, um, you know, better safe than sorry. That's what I say. So, so it's, are you actually being superstitious or are you being theatrical? Or do you just like crushing eggs? In many cases, the, the line between superstition and theatricalness are, are hard to discern. But I do notice, I mean, I made an omelet this morning and when I busted up the egg, uh, the, the eggs, I had all uh, six shells piled up and I put my thumb through all of them and threw them out. And, I mean, a part of the fun of a superstition is how much of it is reflex and how much of it is a behavior that you've internalized uh, such that it become a, ha a habit, regardless of why you started doing it or not. And if I'm, you know, if Sheila's around and I do it, I certainly do it theatrically to annoy her, but I don't necessarily <laughs> only do it to annoy her. I mean, to, part of me, I've been doing it since I was eight, and it may just be, you know, some sort of weird uh, twitch muscle memory, and part of it may just be... Well, you know, it's always best to make sure. I mean, how many people walk under a ladder on purpose or step on a crack in the sidewalk if they can't avoid it or any of the other common superstitions? Uh, you know, you break a mirror. No one in you know the Western world says, well, broke a mirror. There you go. There's always something where people, even if to, um, uh, what do I want to say, to exorcise the notion, will say, oh, seven years of bad luck. Or if you say something, you know, you touch wood if you feel like you've said something that you didn't actually want uh to come about. And so there's you acknowledge it mentally even yeah, if you are not even if you are not superstitious but you're still doing it and it's the act of doing it that is the atropatheic act, right? I mean the the folklore doesn't say make this evil this evil eye sign and if you believe you'll protect yourself from evil eye. No, it says make that sign protect you from evil eye. That's how that's how folk magic works. There's this notion of you have to believe for it to be true is 
is something the movie's made up. It's not something that exists in folk magic. So my favorite variant of this, because of course I immediately Googled eggshells and witches. As you should. As one should, is not witch specific, but actually there's an adaptation to uh, fairies and the Irish diaspora to America, because among some Irish communities, the superstition morphed into the fact that your fairies came with you to North America, mm -hmm. but you got to make sure that you crush all those eggs because otherwise they'll turn them into boats and use them to escape back to Ireland. Sail back to Ireland. Oh my yes. goodness. So that was such a great detail. So first of all, it uh, implies that fairies are less enamored with America than Irish Americans are. Well, I mean, it, it, you know, legendarily half of the Italian immigrant community to America went back. A good portion, I don't think it was half, but a good portion of the Irish immigrant community also uh, went back to Ireland after trying out um, uh, the land of the free and the Holy Republic. For, and for the fairy reasons. population, apparently, it's uh, much higher. That yeah. they were constrained only by the lack of Egg eggs with, uh, with structural integrity. Yeah. Although fairies, of course, are, are much more connected to the to the actual soil and water and 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 all that, right? They're they're nature spirits, so right. They'd have to they have to be fighting the Indian uh, fairies for for uh, to live in our oak trees and our uh, bluegrass lawns. And uh, I guess now the temptation is even greater because uh, in their uh, now completely deflated economic miracle, Ireland uh, built. Uh, what was it, like two or three times as much housing as there are Irish people living in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And so that seems ripe for a fairy in, in habitation, if only they can get the eggshells. So I thought that we would uh, use this as the basis of uh, a sort of a, a rift uh, adventure. And so let's, uh, let's see what we can come up with in terms of uh, connecting the whole eggshell story and uh, fairies wanting to return uh, to Ireland into uh, a scenario. So uh, do you want to decide what sort of, whether we do, are we looking for a uh, whimsical urban fantasy adventure or are we going to put a spin on this and make it horror? I think that if you are, I mean, the the thing about the eggshells, if, if, you're, if we're going to keep it with our eggshell theme, it almost has to be whimsical. There, it's going to be very, very difficult to maintain a horror sensibility about fairies that ride in eggshells across the Atlantic Ocean back to Ireland. I, I think that that's much more of a, of a, of a little Borables, um, uh, little tiny uh, borrowers type fairy, uh, urban fantasy type lo lotion. You certainly can do a, a horror story about fairies. I mean, Raymond Feist's fairy tale is, is one of the great ones about American fairies, or rather fairies in America. Um, but I think that it, it's more fun and maybe a little uh, more... Um, uh, outside our standard ambit if we try and keep it light and urban fantastic in this particular case. So in this scenario, are uh, the players playing the fairies trying to conjole their household into leaving some eggs unbroken? I, I think that's probably the way you want to play it. Uh, you know, you, you're playing the little fairies, uh, the, the tiny little post-Shakespeare household sprites, and you've got all of your various uh, concerns and constraints. I mean, you could almost play it as a weird drama system game where you're the, the clan of fairies and half of them want to just wait for some eggshells to be to, to get unbroken, maybe because they have a, a house guest who doesn't understand about breaking the eggs or whatever, and, and the other half are like, no, we have to stick it out here um, and, uh, and and live in the new world. Yeah, and, and to do that, all you have to do is bolt a new opening scene onto Meg Baker's under uh, Hallowed Hill's uh, series pitch. Mm -hmm. right. So it's all there waiting for you, and you can uh, have a family of fairies and uh, the... Uh, opening can be 
you know, you're in America and you're trying to uh, get out and get back to Ireland and perhaps the uh, climax of the series or the end of the first season can be uh, your uh, arrival uh, uh, back home uh, to find out that maybe Ireland has uh, changed from your ancestral memories of it. Uh, perhaps the whole, uh, you know, group of fairies expects Ireland to be what it was in the 19th century and gets back and finds uh, Starbucks and motor vehicles and mm -hmm. all sorts of uh, things that uh, they have associated heretofore only with the horror of America. Yeah, the the other possibility is that you can play it as a you know more standard RPG in which the uh, gathering of the eggshells and the and you know you you would probably want to have it be so that the eggshells are just one part of what you need to go back to Ireland. So you need the eggshells to protect you from water. You'd need um, match heads, uh, you know that that um, uh, that that were burned out. You know they, they did three on a match which is uh, bad luck. And so you have to have match heads that did, that did three so that they have the fire protection. Have some, find some more little domestic superstitions that you have to sort of harvest from the your host family in the course of building your, your eggshell armada to go back to Ireland. And then the actual crossing of the Atlantic and the going down to the shore and however else you get it there, that can be sort of a bunnies and burrows, watership down type, um, a small scale epic in which you know your your biggest enemy is the house cat who's like no uh, I don't I don't like you fairies and I'm going to eat you once you leave the family's protection because I've always hated you and only the fact that the family allows you to live has let you live and then you've also got all of your other enemies uh, the local um, uh, North American fairies that are are still mad about the conquest in the 17th century or the fairy families from the next house over who have assimilated and don't want to see people leaving and uh, giving them more fairy work to do. So you, you can have all manner of weird little rivalries and things, and the actual process of getting down to the Atlantic is actually the campaign, because, I mean, you know as well as I do that man versus nature, or even tiny fairy versus nature, is a quick way to do a bunch of roll-sailing, 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 oh my god, are we still rolling-sailing? Because... Once you've gotten to the Atlantic, you can sail across to, to Ireland, one would hope, without right. uh, too much There's only a couple of obstacles that you could think of. So, yeah. uh, you know, you are caught up in the wake of a tanker. You deal with that. Mm -hmm. You're, um, you know, the risk of being marooned on a, on a sea of uh, weeds and pollution. There's that. I guess there's the inevitable uh, shark fear. Or, right, or a uh, whale. You get swallowed by a whale. And uh, and then there's, there's your getting there. So I guess for the... Uh, well, first of all, obviously, we're riffing something that is very kid-friendly. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, if your listeners are looking for a sort of a quick scenario that you can kind of uh, freeform and uh, make into uh, something to run for kids, that's a pretty easy one. You can use Patrick Sweeney's fairy tale, for example, as the... Um, uh as the engine if you wanted to. That's very kid-friendly. Uh, yes, indeed. And so another thing that you could probably play with at the beginning, it you might decide that, you know, since the trip over the Atlantic is just, you know, a, a man versus nature, or in this case, sprite versus nature story, that maybe you want to, you know, as soon as you get all the stuff, the rest of it is just sort of a quick epilogue. And the challenge of the scenario is influencing your human hosts to take all the steps that give you the components for what you need. Mm -hmm. So the object then becomes getting a extremely rationalistic, uh, well, no, that doesn't work. I have to be a very superstitious family to uh, 
break all the rules and and uh, ignore their superstitions mm-hmm. and and follow them. So you have to uh, and there would be you know rules set out for exactly how much you can influence your family without exposing yourself to them. You know, just like the the way the borrowers always have to hide from people mm-hmm. that if you want to get back to Ireland. Um, you know that they're never going to fail to crush an eggshell again if they know you're there. So you've got to uh, figure out how you can, you know, induce the Eastern European mother-in-law to give a knife as a gift to her uh, daughter-in-law. And that knife then becomes uh, supernaturally powerful. That's the thing that allows you to sever your tie to the uh, mm-hmm. to the family. And so the design work in creating the scenario is examining the parameters of, you know, how much can you do to make people do things and what's the skill system that you use to have that happen or what are the resources at your disposal. And given that there's a risk, obviously, if the way that you're getting one of the kids to not break the the eggs is that you're talking to them in their dreams or whatever. But once you've made that connection now, because you're a fairy, you're not a people with, you know, that kind of freedom of action. Now that you've made that connection, the kid can keep you here. If, if he's like, no, I want my fairy to stay here and play with me. And it's like, oh, that, yeah, I'm an idiot. I've, I've made that fairy connection. I've, I've entered into a bargain with this kid. And now, you know, to what extent are you drawn by your own actions in trying to influence uh, the, the lapse of superstition? To what extent does, do those actions endanger the, the overall project? Not just from discovery, but from tying you more closely to the family by involving yourself enough in it to get them to make decisions about um, uh, uh, how many uh, to light on the match and whether or not to whistle before or after a rainstorm or whatever. And is the challenge of doing this, a sort of procedural sort of puzzle challenge of influencing the family within the parameters, is that enough or do we want antagonist fairies who, for whatever reason, want to keep you uh, in America? Uh, it might be that they... Uh, did a deal with the uh, with Oberon and Titania to uh, spread fairies uh, throughout the world, and that they get sued by the uh, fairy court every time somebody goes back to Ireland, and so they want to uh, monitor to you and and keep you there, and so they might be uh, struggling uh, to make sure that you uh, don't ever manage to get across the Atlantic again. I think there should absolutely be not just uh, fairies that are you know straight out um, opponents of yours, but also fairies who have other agendas that um, you've got not just the, 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 the sort of um, fairy indenture contractors you're talking about, but also, you know, another fairy who might be in love with one of the, the like the, the, there's a fairy in love with the, the, the little boy or the, or the teenage boy in the family. And she doesn't want to leave because she wants to stay here. And so you have to talk her into being part of the exodus because you can't leave her there necessarily, or you don't want to leave her there. And will she reveal the fact that you're leaving, uh, out of, you know, love or out of selfishness? You've also got, I think that the cat makes a great, uh, sort of large level, large scale foe because he's always looking out for, for an opportunity to mess with you. But you could also have, you know, uh, if you didn't want to do that to the cat, there could be like a, a badger or a vole or something that lives out in the woods. That's the, um, that's a Native American animal uh, that, that doesn't like a, a bunch of European fairies coming in here and messing with you. You could have that. You could have possibly the uh, the, the actual the, the land doesn't want you to leave because the land recognizes that you know, fairies are needed for it the way that earthworms are needed for it. And now that you've been here long enough, there's some some force, some shadow force that is 
working against you. I think there there have to be your scale or magical type opponents as well as just the by and large obstacles because otherwise it's it becomes a, a sort of a one note campaign. And uh, I suppose you could also have little tiny ghosts who want to uh, who are feeding off you and want their your power to still be there, or uh, you know you could have. Uh, uh, a an evil fairy sorcerer who needs a bunch of other fairies around him in order to uh, continue to perform his magic. So I think there's a, a actually a pretty good range of antagonists that you could draw on. Or uh, if you want to get the you know have antagonistic humans, the uh, you could have the psychic researchers who are coming and determined this time to not only uh, photograph uh, fairies and get those annoying photographs that always look photoshopped or uh, like a those scrapbook Conan Doyle uh, style uh, fairy pictures. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, this time they're determined to actually capture you and they have their uh, fairy meters and they're hanging outside in a black van. And that's another constraint on uh, how much you can do. It's not that the, uh, the family would do anything uh, bad to you, but they might, you know, call these people and tell them that they're fairies and uh, they might not think that's bad, but you know, it's bad because you know that uh, some of your other, uh, friends and neighbors have disappeared, and maybe it wasn't just all of them getting on eggshells back to uh, Cork. And there also might be a situation where the maybe the maid or whoever comes in and cleans the house knows the ways to get the fairies to do all the cleaning, and she doesn't want you to leave because then she'd have to actually clean the house. And maybe her magic is not quite proper Irish superstition magic. Maybe she's got um, uh, you know Mexican brujeria or some other non-Irish magic that or Croatian fairy magic, Rusalka magic or whatever they have. Um and so you've got someone who's not necessarily, you know, a a war from the world of science and opposed to you, but isn't part of the family really either, but still wants you there. But they can't like they don't want to destroy you. They just want you to stay there and, and you know become household brownies, basically. I think that's maybe another possible thing. And and that's the kind of person you could maybe talk into changing their mind without revealing yourself to quote-unquote the family uh well we've left a whole bunch of options for uh, those of you who want to run this for some kids the next time you are running something for some kids so i think that uh we can escape in our own eggshell boats to the next segment The Northeast's most quixotically RPG-centric hobby retailer is partnering with Indie Press Revolution to bring small press and independent RPGs to PAX East. Offerings will include plenty of Pelgrane Press titles, in addition to many other games touted on this very podcast. Like Fiasco, Dungeon World, Monster Hearts, Microscope, and the proverbial many, many more. Also, a full range of traditional RPGs, including 
D&D 5th Edition. Dice and accessories, including loose single miniatures, maps, and dungeon tiles. What makes modern myths owner Jim Crocker a retailer extraordinaire? Could it be his above and beyond efforts as a feng shui to play tester? Or the fact that I killed him in a colonial New England Call of Cthulhu game? It has to be those things and not his credentials as an impeccable purveyor of tabletop delights. On Twitter, he's at Modern Myths, plus Facebook backslash Modern Myths Comics, and his website, www.modern-myths.com. Find the Modern Myths booth across from Indie Games on Demand in the tabletop gaming area at PAX East. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Paul Jackson asks Ken and Robin, any ideas on how a GM could run an F-20 campaign filled with gotcha traps and the constant peril of sudden character death and make it fun for the players? I love the horror movie menace of adventures such as Return to the Tomb of Horrors, but I can't imagine your typical F-20 player actually enjoying it, which... I'm not sure. I mean, Return to the Tomb of Horrors. <laughs> this may be one of those questions that contains its own answer. Contains its own answer. Um, I mean, Return to the Tomb of Horrors sold. Uh, I, I don't think they were all run uh, under the premise that they were b- being run through a different uh, sort of adventure. Um, I think just talking to the players and saying, hey, who wants to run a big old perilous gotcha trap full old school dungeon crawl and i think you know as long as you don't make it the thing that you're doing for the rest of the year you're doing it for you know three or four sessions i can see people going along with that and sort of getting into the spirit of it i I think you might want to have a mechanic for what happens when you're killed out do you uh do you go into the dungeon with 15 people so that everyone's got a second character to play play the the hireling or the or the torchbearer or whatever or is there um, what's what's the mechanic for that so that you can sort of enjoy it, or do you have to come back as a as a undead mummy and and fight your your previous uh, friends? That might be a fun way to do it. I can see it a lot of ways to get buy in, but they all begin by saying, "Hey, who wants to play Return to the Tomb of Horrors?" As opposed to, "Let's play an F twenty game and maybe you'll enjoy all the traps." Right, <laughs> um, because in in a standard F twenty game, I think traps are something that have kind of fallen by the wayside because they make a great story once, right? The, the first time that you play Tomb of Horrors as a kid and, you know, that one person just innocently says, oh, well, I touched the black sphere. You're dead, right? That's uh, awesome once and distinctly non-awesome mm-hmm. uh, the second time. And uh, there have been various efforts over the years to make traps more interactive, but it's pretty difficult to get away from the sort of uh, binary yes-no kind of uh uh, factor about them, and it's difficult to find a group where every participant is as interested in uh, sort of puzzles and, uh, you know, I touch this lever and then this other lever, that kind of stuff, uh, with the stakes being you live or die. I think it's hard to find enough people who really uh, dig that. So, first of all, it's a recruiting challenge, as you suggest, in which you need to pitch it as a here's the Iron Man game where we're going to, you know, just run through a whole bunch of high-level characters and see how often you survive. And so I think you need some sort of fun twist on that. And one of them can be resurrect all of your previous characters. And there's sort of some weird puppet master Marvel Secret War sort of thing going on where, uh, as you suggest, when one character dies, another character is then teleported in. Or you could have, you know, the rally, monster rally of classic fantasy characters. So I'm playing Conan, you're playing Elric, 
someone is playing Gandalf, Gandalf, and you're all trying to survive this uh, thing, which may be, you know, and maybe you're really being killed off and maybe you're really just being cycled back into the dreamscape. And so the, the challenge for the players then becomes the one who has the runs through the fewest characters, whether they're your old characters, completely new made up characters or classic characters. Uh, how many, uh, lives do you go through in the course of the evening? And so that can give it a fun sort of competitive aspect, but it's not as big a drag as when the character that you've built up over months and months and months touches the sphere of annihilation and is uh, wiped out. Sphereally uh, annihilated. Yes. yes. Um, uh, Paul does ask how it can be a F20 campaign full of gotcha traps. And again, it begins by asking the players, but my immediate thought is that you make a reward that you need in the campaign dependent on surviving or solving a trap. So the logical thing is that the Loki, the god of traps and cleverness, has filled the world with all of these traps, right? And then he was penned up by the other gods who are sick of his behavior, and the world is just left there. It's full of all of these horrible uh, traps. But because he's also the god of magic, when you solve one of his traps, you get a spell. So... There is a, a, a trap that, that shoots little tiny flames at you, and if you survive that or solve it, you get the spell Burning Hands, and then it goes all the way up to Prismatic Sphere or whatever else. But the only way to get new magical knowledge is to go through this sort of uh, rote or um, uh, initiatory experience that Loki built into literally the fabric of the universe. And he built it in in, in the form of all of these, not just uh, uh, constructs of these uh, dungeons that are all built by Loki-worshipping necromancers, but also he put them into the trees, and he put them into the animals, and he put them into everything, because he was out touching all, this, all the creation while the other gods were away, you know, arguing over who got the most mead or whatever. And so, the whole nature of the world is suffused with this trickster energy, but by learning it and controlling it and mastering it, you gain knowledge. And maybe there is a, a way to get... Uh, uh, to learn knowledge from a master, but that master, remember, had to survive 14 different traps to get his knowledge. He's going to be less happy to just share it with you, you, you Jamoke, uh, than, uh, with, than, than he would be to say, no, here's how, I'll, what I'll do is I'll tell you that no one has gone out and explored the Malachite desert, and I'll bet that there's all the, tra all the lore you need is, is in the traps out there. And so the other characters are playing, um, you know, thieves who are master, uh, trap dissemblers, and every time you disassemble a trap, you, you get to, you know, go up a, a thief level. If you're a, a fighter, that's how you get your experiences surviving traps. Um, and if the traps are also full of monsters, which a lot of them I suppose would be, that gives you, you know, fighter abilities or, or makes your sword into a plus one sword by fighting your way through a, a given trap. And that, therefore, you tie the actual goal, uh, game-wise, into the story goal that you want them to fulfill. Now, you still do need players who will put up with that as opposed to another different sort of cosmology, but I think that might um, suffuse a campaign world enough that you can always get away with having a, um, a giant boulder fall down and roll on people because everyone's like, oh, I wonder what spell this giant boulder gives me. I run into its path and study it, or whatever. Right, well, this is where you uh, grab Gareth Ryder Hanrahan's uh, gumshoe pathfinder rules mm -hmm. and you if you're making it the trap of the week that the goal of this campaign is that every week you're uh, destroying another of loki's classic traps and there's all sorts of obstacles 
involved in that. Uh, you have to travel there. You uh, have to defeat a number of uh, monsters to, to get to the trap in order to defeat it. But also, you are investigating the mystery ahead of time of how you disable this trap. And so rather than the uh, gotcha of the sphere of annihilation, where if you're dumb enough to touch it, you're dead, you know that this week you're journeying into the uh, jungles of Zur to uh, dismantle the uh, clutching vine trap, where there's this uh, trap where vines come out and they constrict everybody and uh, anything anybody has tried to do previously in order to kill off the vines has failed. And so you conduct an investigation to discover how it is that Loki constructed this trap and what sort of magic did he use and what uh, servitors did he work through? Because of course, Loki is still on the God plane and can't, he does not directly making these traps, but rather he had to uh, get earthly servitors to do them. So you do your research and Loki has a uh, squad of people who are going to react to you because, uh, you know, one or two episodes in, he realizes that you're trying to, uh, remove his stranglehold on the world. And so the scenes initially are about putting together the ingredients that you need in order to disarm the trap so that you know what you're working with. And then once you get there, there's inevitably one more thing that you need to deduce in order to deactivate that trap. So that then gives the other players in the group who, statistically speaking, are likely to include a butt kicker and someone who likes to interact with other people and the usual a melange of uh, player styles that they've all also had something to do along the way in order to get to the point where the player who likes deducing things about imagined puzzles gets to do her thing and figure out that the uh, way to stop the vines is that you've got to uh, telescope the little round thing that they come out of by uh, reversing uh, the gear underneath, for example. And that's something that you had an opportunity to put together by assembling all the clues, but it's not something that you were just told it right. Yeah, I think that that's another thing that you're that is needed in something like this is that plenty of the puzzles need to be assembled with information you gather over a series of adventures, as opposed to one single defeat traps roll. Uh, the actual trap solving mechanic has to be different and interesting, as opposed to just making the same role every time, because otherwise it just becomes uh, formulaic. And I, and you know, as with anything that is based on a formula encounter, um, you want to make sure that that formula can be changed up, and that even the act of um, of instantiating that formula is a different feeling act each time that you do it. Much like every fight in D and D feels different because the, uh, the the immediate tactical concerns and the immediate force mix are different. So even a bunch of fights with orcs, each one will, will come out differently because of the dice. You'd need to have a mechanic, a trap-solving uh, or trap-fixing mechanic, or a bunch of pieces of trap puzzle putting together that uh, you can do as opposed to a single, you know, oh, look at that, made my int, look at me. Uh, well, one uh, trap we're in danger of falling into is running out of time for this podcast, so let us move on to our uh, next, uh, perhaps somewhat epic, segment. The 
smell of popcorn and the no longer worrying projector, which is now projecting almost exclusively digital files, uh, tell us that we have once more entered the movie-loving confines of the Cinema Hut. And uh, this time we're going to cover our top 10 movies of 2014. Unlike regular professional critics, uh, it takes us a little while to catch up with the uh, vast deluge of uh, holiday titles, although I don't think a lot of things that made the list for me wound up being the uh, movies of the, the big end of the year prestige uh, rush. At least one of the ones uh, that fit that category I went to and uh, wish I hadn't. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, we're now going to uh, cover our top tens of the years. And maybe some of these will be uh, on the uh, Oscars. We've timed this episode to drop just before the Oscars. So, uh, Ken, uh, let's start our upward countdown uh, with you. What was your 10th favorite film of the year and why my 10th favorite film of the year was the lego movie because as you're watching it you keep thinking well that was the high point they're now just <laughs> going to go to something that is tired that you've already seen there'll be a normal story they're gonna drop back down like in up where you had that absolutely perfect opening seven minutes and then the rest of the film is great but it's not those seven minutes. But the Lego movie keeps going from strength to strength, and even the bit that you know is coming, where the real world is involved and people are playing with the Legos, turns out to do something interesting and original with that tired setup. And the fact that they managed to get a, a very long animated film uh, with that degree of, of originality throughout it and maintain the pacing, maintain the creativity, maintain the originality, plus the existence of Lego Batman, previously MPN'd in these very pixels, uh, tells me that I think the Lego movie is my number 10. I certainly uh, found it enjoyable throughout. I really liked the Lego movie, although due to other awesome movies being... Uh in existence. It did not make my top 10, but I would, uh, I don't, I doubt there's anyone who listens to this podcast who hasn't, uh, yet seen the, uh, Lego movie, but, and, and I'm, uh, as a viewer, uh, do not love animation aimed at kids as much as, uh, a lot of other uh, members of our uh, geekly tribe. I'm not, uh, automatically sold on that kind of thing, but I did, uh, really like the, uh, Lego movie. My number 10 choice is a gory Japanese crime comedy slash tribute to the joy of filmmaking from one of my favorite uh, directors working today, Sion Sono, and that is Why Don't You Play in Hell? <laughs> An excellent question. Yes, uh, and it is uh, one of two films on my list that is propelled by a percussion-oriented soundtrack, uh, to give you a little, uh, little hint of what lies ahead. But basically the premise of this is that a Yakuza boss knows that his extremely demanding wife is about to get out of prison. And he has uh, promised her that they, he would make their daughter a movie star. But so far, they've only made her, the uh, when she was a kid, the star of one toothpaste commercial. Mm. So uh, the Yakuza then hires a, a bunch of enthusiastic, but not necessarily talent rich wannabe filmmakers in order to make the movie that they can then show to the mobster's wife and fulfill his promise to her because she is even more terrifying than he is. And a real actual gang war ends up 
interfering with and then becoming uh, the movie. So it's a um, crazy, energetic, sort of crazy midnight movie uh, that you uh, may not be familiar with. And if you're not, uh, look for Why Don't You Play in Hell. Look for Why Don't You Play in Hell, available wherever hell is played in. Um, I did not see that movie, but it sounds uh, like great fun, and it also sounds like I have identified why you put it on your top ten, because like many uh, film buffs, you enjoy films about filmmaking, I think, just as a thing, right? Uh, yes. So, number nine on, on my list is something that I suspect is on your list somewhere, possibly at number nine, possibly not. Inherent Vice, the new uh, Paul Thomas Anderson film that you and I saw in the... Uh, storied confines of the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in Austin, Texas, and in glorious 70mm, and in absolutely manic, existential detective uh, incoherence of plot and delight in uh, casting and story and direction. Um, I think that, certainly compared to, say, The Master, uh, and this is going to happen maybe a little more than it might with some of the films that I saw this year. I, I look at what they did previously and I say, well, this is a great movie, but it's no The Master. And so I look at Inherent Vice, and while it is great and it is a, a, a wild ride in a lot of different respects and was very much enjoyable, I, I, it's no The Master, and so therefore it is at the relatively middling heights of number nine on my list. I will not tell you where it is on my list. As you guessed, it is on my list. And for me, uh, it's competing against the other films this year and not competing against the Masters. It's also competing against those, and I think that the fundamental incoherence, which while I get is sort of the point of the joke, also weakens it against films that are more coherent further up my list. Uh, Speaking of things that are further up the list, I bet that uh, my next pick is also further up your list, and it is Boyhood, Mm. Uh, Richard Linklater's contemplative, uh, evocative wonderful sort of theatrical trick of uh, filming a little bit of of one person's fictional life uh, every year for uh, the span of from age uh, eight to college age. I found it a real uh, sort of a rapture of everyday life. And one of the things that I really respected about it was that there are various points in the film in which you go, oh no, here's where it turns into a movie. Here's where the melodramatic Mm -hmm. thing happens. And no, it's about life. It's about uh, the real ordinary lives we have and about the sometimes uh, challenging and disturbing things that can happen to you when you're a kid and you don't have control of who your mom marries. Uh, But other things that are just, you know, about the process of uh, feeling your relationship to your bike and whether you're lying on a, a field of grass or hanging out with your friends or when you get older, uh, beginning to explore the word, world of adulthood. And um, I'm a big uh, fan of uh, Richard Linklater and uh, really like this film. And uh, uh, it's not my favorite Oscar-nominated movie, as we're about to find out, but it's the one that I would be, of the ones that I think has a chance of winning, I would actually be delighted to see it win. Okay. Boyhood, as you suspect, is elsewhere on my list, and we will leave it at that. My number eight is Only Lovers Left Alive, and when you take the words Jim Jarmusch vampire movie, you know that it's going to be something I want to watch, and when you combine that with uh, John Hurt playing an undead Christopher Marlowe, and Tilda Swinton as uh, one of the two leading vampires uh, named Eve in the in the movie, uh, you have a movie that I'm going to watch with increasing delight, as indeed I did. I liked 
pretty much everything about Only Lovers Left Alive. Obviously, the soundtrack was, as with uh, many uh, movies by Jarmusch, was its own uh, wonderful thing. Uh, the acting is all great. I am not a giant Tom Hiddleston fan, but he certainly filled the character of Adam well and played it uh, strongly. I liked the small-scale domestic story, and I liked the fact that the two characters, the Adam and Eve, uh, are in love. They are the lovers, titular uh, lovers left alive. And the movie is not about problems that they have with their love. Their love is strong throughout, which, as someone who is also um, in a currently non-vampiric uh, love story, I like love stories where the lovers, uh, uh, th- where their bond is something that is a strength and a rock of the story, not something that's coming apart to create the uh, the drive for the story. I, I like that feel, and when you can do it with a uh, sensibility of decay and disintegration all around it, uh, it only uh, puts it into stronger relief. So I, I put that on my list, and I, I liked it very, very much. It's not a it's not a giant film. It's not big, but it's it, it's Jarmusch. It, it's what Jarmusch does, and he does it really well. My lack of comment on that film might pretend something about the future. My number eight film is Penance by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Uh, another film, or in this case, a uh, miniseries in Japan that was released theatrically in North America. Uh, that uh, So it's a five-episode uh, series uh, shot in his sort of signature, eerie, kind of deadpan style. And it's uh, about a, a group of four little girls whose fifth friend, when they are children is lured away and murdered. And the girl's mother comes to them and uh, quite uh, inexplicably and unreasonably blames them all for their role in her murder and uh, warns them that their comeuppance is coming. She will watch their lives and monitor what it is that they're doing, and she will exult in their inevitable downfalls. And then it flashes forward to... Uh, tell a story of each of those four girls when they've grown up into a young woman. And then the fifth episode is about the mother. And it takes a a long while to sort of coalesce and reveal what it is that it's uh, doing and how everything kind of connects up. Uh, But throughout, it's um, quietly disturbing and compelling and uh, well worth the watch. I uh, I'm sure that very few people will watch it in a theatrical setting, as I did when it was at the uh, Toronto International Film Festival two years ago. Uh, but uh, I'm sure it will eventually, <clears throat> if it hasn't already, surface uh, in various digital formats so you can uh, watch it at home. And uh, I strongly recommend it. Okay. Um, a uh, theatrical miniseries, an interesting category breaker. I did not see it, but it is uh, saved in my Netflix queue even as we speak. My number seven is uh, Birdman by the lovely and talented Alejandro Inarritu, starring Michael Keaton in a, what, I, what do I want to say? I want to say a bravura role. It, it can't be career-defining because his career has been so full of highlights, but it is... A, a career-redefining. Well, I think it's redefining for people who nodded off and haven't been watching him in a lot of things, but it certainly... Well, that's that's his career in terms of people being excited about right. him, Dan. He, he hasn't changed, but it's reminded everybody of Michael Keaton. Yeah. How good he is, yes. And indeed, he is very good, but one of the interesting things about it is that not only is uh, Michael Keaton good, and not only is Edward Norton good as the most self-centered uh, actor in New York, which is saying two-somethings, all the actors are good, but one of the really strong things is that the way that the uh, script doesn't 
use any of the characters as foils. Every character, when they're speaking, are saying something that you, the uh, viewer, agree with, that it's true. And it's about conflicting truths, not about one character saying, but you can't do that, it's too dangerous, which is meant to set up the heroism of the other character. Now, when the character says you can't do that, it's because, no, you really can't do that. It's a terrible idea. And there's a lot of very interesting things that happen uh, as a result of that approach to the script. And, of course, the whole broader feel of the movie, the sort of magical realist sensibility of it, is something that I think a lot of movies uh, want to have, and none of them do. And so I was very uh, fond of, of that as well. It, it's not the funniest of comedies or the most intensive dramas, but what it is, it is uh, all very well and of itself. So I would uh, recommend Birdman at number seven. I would recommend Birdman at number seven. Ah, good uh, for you. Yeah, so uh, things that you haven't mentioned, first of all, the, the bravura direction of having... Uh, Everything done in these long, long tracking yes, shots. Yes. That, uh, and the, again, the propulsive percussion soundtrack. It's none of these tricks are new, but they're fused together in a really exciting, energetic, alive way. That uh, and once again, you mentioned with uh, the previous film with a percussion soundtrack. Uh, Why don't you play in hell? That this is a, a film. Uh, that has a lot of artifice, and it is about artifice. Mm -hmm. It is about the reality of your character if you are engaged in uh, being a creative person and you're bumping up against the limits of that uh, creativity. Um, as you suggest, the performances are, are really rich. The characters are uh, all uh, strongly written, with the possible exception of the critic character. And uh, it's just a, a really sort of thrilling uh, piece of cinema. And it is one that... Uh, I'm beginning to wonder if maybe that uh, it will get a it will do some surprising things at the Oscars because uh, it turns out that actors really love movies about actors. Uh, witness the Shakespeare in Love uh, surprise uh, win. So the, it it uh, may do better than expected given how aesthetically stylized it is, and it's not a uh, an inspirational biopic or any of that sort of middle-brow stuff that often wins. But uh, I uh, really enjoyed that as well, enough to put it at number seven. So what's your number six? My number six is The Grand Budapest Hotel, our uh, uh, much-beloved, mutually director Wes Anderson's newest uh, wedding cake of a movie. I uh, Obviously, uh, you know, it, Wes Anderson going in, you know, diving full bore into Balkan nostalgia, into sort of uh, uh, the the last golden age of Europe uh, sensibility that he did with this movie. It's sort of, um, uh, you know, a pitching right down into my strike zone, so I was very happy with it. Uh, I also enjoy, obviously, Rafe Fiennes' performance as well as all the other performances. Um, uh, Anderson does a good job of getting theatrical in the sense of larger than life, but how the character, how the actor feels on the screen performances out of actors. He even manages to make Adrian Brody palatable on screen, uh, possibly by casting him as a, as a bad guy. Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, good use of good actors and great use of great actors, uh, by uh, Wes Anderson. The, I, I was surprised there was no moment where we showed the whole hotel in cutaway. I thought that that, <laughs> that was the equivalent of um, uh, of the of the never mentioned vampires in. Um, he, he was saving the, uh, the the quasi animation bit for the uh, yeah for the, uh, the little funicular railroad. Yeah, so I I just enjoy the the sensibility of the film. I like that sort of E. Phillips Oppenheim nonsense story that he that he uh, 
ran around it. It's uh, not as as real or as um, uh, Im- important, if that's the word I want to say, or as true as Moonrise Kingdom, but it's still a great, great day at the movies and really well put together. I don't think that there's a flaw in the film at all saying that something is dessert instead of a main course shouldn't be necessarily a diss, but it is enough to keep it down at the relatively uh, mid-tier heights of number six for me. Uh, number six for me is Force Majeure, a uh, I think Swiss film by a director named Ruben Ostland. And it's this wonderful, both small-scale and large-scale Kubrickian dark family comedy about a, a nuclear family, the uh, young mom and dad and the two kids who go on a skiing vacation. And it turns out there's a lot of uh, tensions in, in the marriage to begin with. But uh, what happens while they're at this uh, gigantic, super posh ski resort is that while they're out on uh, a balcony enjoying their uh, breakfast, the controlled avalanche system that the resort uses to prevent uncontrolled avalanches uh, lets off this great plume of snow that uh, seems to the people on the restaurant deck to be an actual avalanche engulfing them. And what happens is that, uh, this is not a spoiler, it's the premise of the film, it happens pretty early, the father grabs his cell phone and runs away, abandoning the rest of his family. And the rest of the movie is the oh. emotional fallout from that. And uh, it's... The emotional avalanche. Yes, indeed. Will. And uh, it's got this uh, really great uh, sort of uh, wicked sense of uh, humor behind its study of uh, realistic uh, uh, behavior. It's uh, funny. It's weird. It's uh, it's And it's got that sort of... Uh, Kubrick gimlet eyed view from uh f- from a jaded Mount Olympus. And uh so uh in terms of its uh, uh visual approach and its uh, sound design in particular, as the uh booms continue to go off from the uh, avalanche control system and the uh sort of incisive look at what this uh revelation of character does to uh the couple in particular, uh it's uh, really a uh uh, an acidic delight that I strongly recommend. Okay. Uh, I think that was at the film fest, but I did not go see it. So it will be uh, on the list. Uh, my number five is Hi Dare, uh, the latest of Vishal Bardwaj's Shakespearean adaptations after Makpool, which is his Macbeth, and Omkara, which is his Othello. Uh, Omkara is the best screen version of Othello ever made. Hi Dare is not the best screen Hamlet ever made, but it is a better movie than Omkara because it is a bigger, more important story. The setting is transposed to Kashmir, and his father, Haider's father, has been disappeared by the Indian government for harboring a terrorist leader. And so the question of, is my father dead, is the whole first half of the movie, which puts the whole... Uh, question of Hamlet's revenge into a whole new uh, spectacle. Over the course of that first half, you recognize that this is a world of real violence, of real political uh, stakes, of real um, uh, family stakes, because Hyder's uh, mother, uh, played by the uh, great Indian actress Taboo, um, is uh, obviously uh, given a lot more to respond to than simply you know, you show up and it turns out she's canoodling with Claudius, although it, it, indeed she does begin to canoodle with Haider's uh, 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 brother, Kuram. And uh, about halfway through the movie, uh, Irfan Khan shows up 
uh, in, in a in a white dishdasha with his tur- with a white turban, having escaped from the prison where Hyder's father was, and giving Hyder his father's last words, which are of course, "Avenge me," and then Hamlet gets started. So the actual action of Hamlet is the second half of the film, and once you've got the the sort of the full political authenticity and the full social authenticity of the Hamlet setting going, the story just becomes even more powerful than in a, a normal Shakespearean adaptation. So it's just amazingly good. Uh, Shahid Kapoor, who is normally sort of a light romantic uh, character actor, plays um, not a character actor, a light romantic hero, plays uh, Hyder, the Hamlet character, uh, really well. His madness is uh, sort of a theatrical version of. Uh, Shahid Kapoor's own rom-com character persona. The musical numbers are traditional uh, Kashmiri uh, choreography uh, mingled in with with Bollywood, so they're terrific to play within a play as a Kashmiri puppet uh, drama. Just everything in it works, Uh, and of course it ends with a really bloody uh, gunfight in lieu of the relatively anodyne duel that you normally see. So it's it's a terrific Hamlet, it's a terrific film, it has a lot of things to say about the Kashmir situation, but none of them are sort of obvious, and it's not a one-sided view of, of Kashmir at all. It's very rounded, uh, looking at, at the whole question of, of, of that occupation and, and what the Kashmiri terrorists can accomplish and what they want to accomplish and how exactly they're, um, uh, they're meant to operate in a world where literally, you know, the, the king is dead and something is rotten in Kashmir. It's, it's quite a, it's quite a film, and it's a great Hamlet, so I recommend anyone who's a fan of, uh, of Hamlet to uh, track it down and find it. My number five is We Are the Best! Exclamation point. Uh, this is one of my favorites from uh, TIFF 2013. It's a Swedish film by Lucas Moodyson, and it's uh, set in the 80s uh, when the uh, punk scene is beginning to die, but you're not going to tell the three uh, young girl power heroes of this realistic uh high school, slice-of-life, inspirational uh, rock and roll drama, they're not going to let uh, their lack of musical experience get in the way of being uh, fun punks and entering the music contest, even though the music teacher favors the uh, boys who have their traditional classic rock, prog rock band. And it's a, a great example of naturalistic cinema that is full of life and uh, not full of boredom. And it's uh, just sort of a, a real uh, delight in the incisiveness of its observation and uh, without being sappy, a, a great uh, tribute to uh, uh, girls doing it for themselves. Okay. Who doesn't love girls doing it for themselves? My number four choice is one that you turned me on to in this very own podcast, The Suspect. Uh, directed by Wan Shin-yoon, a South Korean uh, film about a North Korean spy who is the uh, titular suspect being framed by a different and evil North Korean spy for the death of a uh, North Korean-connected businessman. All manner of uh, brouhaha and conspiracy uh, operate in there. It's very much the answer to the musical question, What? Uh, how do you translate the word Jason Bourne into Korean? Um, but it is also just a by-the-numbers perfect spy thriller, and the individual characters have individual character moments that make sense, add to their humanity. Uh, The uh, choreography is terrific, the story is terrific, 
and none of it is obvious, none of it is the normal sort of thing that you would expect in this sort of film. It it manages to be a post-born spy movie without being every post-born spy movie, without, while being its own thing, and also being recognizable in the tradition of South Korean spy thrillers. So I would put The Suspect at number four. Yeah, it takes a little while to kind of coalesce and bring itself into focus. It's not hitting you over the head with the story points at the beginning, and it really uh, does a great job of having sort of secondary characters have added dimension to them and uh, has a, a great ending to boot. So uh, you can tell that I liked it because I'm the one who recommended it to you. Absolutely. So my number four choice is the aforementioned Inherent Vice. I uh, found it uh, uh, sort of really magical in the sort of the spaces between scenes and in its uh, use of the investigative format to tell a story of uh, doomed love. And there are... uh, and. Because it's not released in the same year as The Master, I don't have to compare that orange to those apples. Uh, But I think that this one will be uh, somewhat more uh, kind of quotable and uh, perhaps even rewatchable than uh, some of his other recent uh, brilliant films. Uh, The use of Martin Short as a sudden (laughs) special effect is uh, quite uh, brilliantly uh, brought off. And uh, a successful Thomas Pynchon film adaptation uh, is also uh, kind of a uh, a wonder to behold because uh, that's something that shouldn't necessarily work on film, but it does uh, brilliantly. And also the uh, the score by uh, his usual composer Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead renown uh, again is a really fascinating kind of twentieth uh, uh, century classical. Uh, style film score that uh, works without uh, pulling focus. And it's just full of great little performances. Uh, while I was watching it at the Alamo Draft House, I was uh, wondering whether I was going to uh, order one of their splendid craft beers, which of course is the whole point of the Alamo Draft House, is that you can unobtrusively order food and drink while you watch a film. And I was going to, well, do I want it yet? Do I want it? I'm going to time it to the next appearance of another big time recognizable actor doing a little cameo roles. And I forget who it was who led to my ordering the beer, but it, you, every five or 10 minutes, the film changes its aspect again and introduces another character that sends it uh, spinning in another direction. So I uh, like that uh, quite a bit enough to put it at number four. <laughs> we already uh, discussed my uh, ranking of inherent vice, but I certainly agree with you in all of those particulars. My number three is the difference between uh, your love of films about films or about Thomas Pynchon and my love of films about 1970s conspiracy thrillers, because my number three is Captain America, The Winter Soldier, which is uh, by a very long chalk, the best of the Marvel Universe movies, and in this case is a masterful 1970s uh, conspiracy thriller that just happens to have Captain America in it and be set in 2014 and be full of giant flying um, uh, attack craft and uh, Black Widow and all manner of other wonderful things that you like to see in a movie. Uh, if uh, movies are about spectacle, this does all of that well. If they're about story, its story is absolutely, uh, 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 I won't hesitate to say flawless, but certainly bulletproof. Uh, the, the, the acting is, uh, in Chris Evans's case, considerably above his normal, and in all the other cases is right about their normal. Robert Redford does a terrific job playing, um, uh, sort of all the idealistic characters he played in the 70s turned curdled and horrible. And, yeah, uh, making that sort of <laughs> a living reference to uh, all the President's Men and Three Days of the Condor. And Three Days of the Condor, exactly. Uh, there's, there's really not 
very much wrong with this movie, which is something to say about any movie, much less uh, sort of a Marvel franchise uh, tentpole-type film. Um, but everyone involved did a great job. The Russos did a great job directing the action sequences. You can always tell what's going on. And there's nice little touches, like the fact that uh, in one of the big fights, uh, Captain America is the guy who goes after all the low-level mooks, while Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow goes after the b- big guy, the, 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 the big bad, uh, the Winter Soldier. That's, that's kind of an interesting touch. And the creation of, of her character as a uh, not just a competent sidekick but an actual co-lead in the in the in the story universe is uh, refreshing and is very interesting to see the way that they uh made that decision and then followed through as opposed to simply saying they were going to do it in the script and trying to uh hang a lantern on it they actually went ahead and made a strong black widow film of the sort that people have been claiming they've wanted to see forever so for all those reasons and uh for the the soundtrack the the cinematography, the lighting, the production design, uh, Shield headquarters, the, just the everything from the elevators to the hallways was thought about by someone, thought relatively intelligently, indeed. And, you know, the fact that we don't have to go through the whole origin story for the Falcon. He can show up and be the Falcon, and then he's falconing around. Just every decision was made correctly, which is something that never happens in a mainstream mass-market tentpole movie, except it was in Captain America Winter Soldier. So that's my number three. Speaking of aforementioned things, my uh, choice at number three is the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yay! I don't know what more to say about it than you didn't, except that uh, Rafe Fiennes uh, is a comic delight, that you don't necessarily associate him uh, with being a brilliant comedian, but he is that character with his combination of uh, verbal vulgarity and elegance is uh, a delight, and, uh, you know, it's... You're just saying something obvious to say that the production design is delightful in in a Wes Anderson film. The soundtrack, the Alessandro Despa uh, soundtrack, is a, another great contributor to the uh, delight of that film. The way it plays with aspect ratios at the beginning is a, a big tip of the hat to attentive uh, film fans, and uh, it's just a, a delight uh, from beginning to end. And and like. Almost all Wes Anderson is highly rewatchable. So, as you said, uh, I'm not going to insult dessert uh, by <laughs> saying that sometimes dessert is better than first, first course. And um, actually, there's uh, I as often do uh, found it very moving as well. And uh, if you haven't seen the film, I'm not going to explain the uh, detail that makes it so. But when you watch it the second time, knowing about that, there is a melancholy that suffuses everything that I think uh, bumps it up to the uh, very richest of Anderson's films. So I'm happy to put that at number three. And again, uh, number six in 2014 on this list is still a pretty good place, I think, given my list. Uh, Number two, my number two is Whiplash, mentioned previously in the recommendation engine, and I will reiterate, I said most of what I wanted to say about it then, but I will reiterate the terrific job that Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons do as playing two equally broken people in a deathmatch. Uh, a seemingly unequal deathmatch that proves to be a little more equal than you think. That's very much a steel cage, two actors enter, one actor leaves type setup, but manages to do all of that while saying, uh, if not super intelligent, at least unexceptionable things about jazz, while also having a really great soundtrack, as one might expect. And uh, everything about it just worked really, really well. It's a, it's a movie that has a relatively limited set of goals, but it overachieves all of them. If there's a weak point, 
Uh, it's Paul Reiser playing the dad, but to some extent, Paul Reiser's weakness is an essential part of the sort of uh, way that you can tell that Miles Teller's uh, character, Andrew Neiman, is in fact deserving of a of a of a trip through the refiner's fire in the in the course of the film. The, the, the that that role and taking it and playing that way. It seems like a weakness, but it's not actually. It's it's a part of the film's overall quality, and it's something that you would not necessarily have expected. Talk about people who sort of, uh, you know, reach above themselves. Paul Reiser uh, doing a terrific job as someone who is not a weasel, but is also not an effective human being. Also, the future Supergirl, uh, Melissa Benoist is uh, or Benoist is terrific as uh, the girlfriend who, in a film about masculinity, is marginalized, and her marginalization is not seen as a good thing. Is seen yet again as a symptom of something gone horribly wrong. Uh, Whiplash and Nightcrawler are the two films that I have not yet managed to see that I suspect could have wound up somewhere on this list had I made it after seeing them. Uh, number two is, uh, speaking of Pipe Late earlier, Only Lovers Left Alive. Uh, again, you've enumerated um, many of the points about it, but it's sort of elegiac uh, feeling, it's melancholy, it's a uh, sense of being a, a sort of a hangout movie, of dropping in on the everyday lives of people who happen to be immortal vampires. Uh, some of the scenes, like there's a scene, for example where they uh, discover a particular exotic mushroom growing outside of their house, and it's not set up for anything. It's uh, not a plot point for later. It's just something that uh, unleashes a meditation on uh, life and uh, immortality and uh, the nature of humanity as seen through the point of view of people who are no longer human. And uh, again, uh, I found it really entrancing. And uh, if you have not uh, seen it, folks. Uh, it is a vampire movie to see. Uh, my number one film, as you predicted, is Boyhood. Uh, I have had a uh, film-goer uh, love for uh, Richard Linklater ever since Slacker, and he has, with, he, he has never let me down. He has only occasionally let me even partially down. In Boyhood, he vaulted over every expectation that I had for him into something that I think is Really, it's a timeless masterpiece. It's about the relationship between a, a man and his son, which is one of the crucial relationships in life. Certainly, if you are a son or a man with a son, uh, you recognize the truth of this. Um, it does it honestly, as you mentioned previously. It does it without sentiment or artifice. At no point is it a movie. Uh, it even makes up for the fact that the really gifted child actor who was cast as the, as the boy turns into a not particularly gifted teenage actor. And so therefore I think there was some interesting choices and adaptations made in the course of filming. Um, but that said, Linklater is the only person on the planet who can get a great performance out of Ethan Hawke, and he gets 12 years worth of great performance out of Ethan Hawke there. And Patricia Arquette does, if anything, a better job playing uh, the mom right. in it's a movie. Right, it's not just about a boy and his father, it's about a, a right. boy and his mother as well, for sure. Right, as well. But, but the, but, but, you know, in a, in a movie where she is clearly taking second place, both in the story and in everything else, to play that part as, as, as you know, unflinchingly as she did and as bravely uh, is it, it, it was quite a job on of her and maybe you know being a, if, if being a dad is uh, the vitally important thing being a mom is the vitally important thing backwards and in heels as ginger rogers once said so i think that uh you know every every part of boyhood is 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 really great and really watchable and just the 
the ongoing layering of story year after year after year in the course of that, it's, you know, it, sure, it, it's an artifice. It's a trick in the sense of you don't usually make a 12-year uh, story over a 12-year period. But Linklater is now the guy who people will use the excuse for why they don't do it again, because he did it perfectly and uh, meaningfully. So there you go. Boyhood. My number one choice is Under the Skin by Jonathan Glazer, who also uh, directed Sexy Beast, among other things. And uh, it is a uh, artsy, stylized, uh, I think genuinely alien take on the Alien Body Snatcher movie. It's an experiential film. It leaves out all of the exposition and explanatory story points that you would normally expect in a science fiction film about an alien roving around Scotland uh, claiming uh, human bodies for parasitic ends. And uh, I think is maybe the most successful film I can think of that puts you in the point of view of an alien being encountering the bizarre aliens called humans and the society that we've uh, created. And there are so many uh, images from this that are uh, burned into my consciousness. The lead character is sort of fascinatingly ambiguous because you uh, come to feel for and uh, pity her, even though she's an alien murderer. Again, uh, a, a Kubrick reference comes to mind in terms of the style, but uh, and the uh, score, as I recommended earlier on uh, Recommendation Engine by Mika Levy, it adds uh, considerably uh, to this. So, uh, and it's a, a great. A low-key interior performance from uh, Scarlett Johansson because it's her face and the way that she's taking in all of these uh, sensory experiences that are uh, completely different to her than they would be to us. Uh, I just uh, found it um, really magical and strange and, and risk-taking, and uh, I uh, that made it my number one movie of the year. Under the Skin is my, 11, my number 11 movie of the year, and again, I think that my top 10 are all really strong films. Uh, the only reason that it's 11 and not farther up is because I think it, it, it's a movie that almost succeeds too well. It's, it's very alien and very uh, alienating in a lot of ways. And while that may or may not be a, a desideratum, for me, you know, uh, art is about communication and the film about the failure of understanding is a hard uh, landing to stick. But it's still... Everything you say about it is true. It's a great, great movie. Absolutely worth seeing for any science fiction fan, any horror fan. Um, very much a, a terrific film and a great performance by Scarlett Johansson and indeed by the other uh, sort of characters who react to her alien nation in uh, very human but pathetic and, and, and failed ways. So I thought it was a terrific movie, but it just didn't quite, you know, say what it wanted to say as directly as as maybe I would have wanted is the only reason it's not there. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's indirectness and it's alienness is exactly why it's uh, it's number one on our list. But uh, that's an incredible harmony between our two lists this year. And uh, I think the only uh, I don't think we disagree on anything really, except in terms of uh, uh, ranking within a pretty narrow band of uh, really great quality films. So if you thought 2014 was a terrible year for film, I would submit that you are uh, not paying attention. Yes, um, and that you are perhaps uh, needing to listen to Ken and Robin discuss film. And because we uh, managed, after I think a, a slightly shaky start early on, to hit some, some pretty good ones. So uh, I think that on that note of triumph, uh, we can 
conclude this podcast and maybe go get started on our 2015 list. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Plot Points. Modern Myths. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Prevent fairy escape by hitting the donate button at KenandRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or fiendish trap by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.